Welcome to Nailing It Down, a podcast dedicated to reporting and analyzing current events, tapping whatever knowledge and expertise we can find to get as close to the truth as possible. I'm Mark Kelly. About 25 years ago, riots erupted in Los Angeles after a jury acquitted four white police officers charged with beating motorist Rodney King, an African-American man, during a traffic stop. The cops likely would never have faced a trial if a bystander hadn't caught the vicious beatdown on videotape. In any case, the violent reaction in the streets alarmed authorities so much that they actually asked Rodney King, the victim in this case, to appeal to citizens to calm down. And, as some of you may recall, he did. People, um, I just want to say, you know, can we all get along? Can we get along? Anger boiled over for five long, fiery days, and then subsided. In the aftermath, officials tallied the cost of the damage. But, it seems to me, Rodney King's question, a profound question to ask any time in black and white America, was never really answered. Maybe no one had the courage to answer Rodney's question honestly in that tense moment. But after a quarter of a century, if you ask me, can we all just get along in this country? I think the answer was, then, and still is, no. At least not without some serious changes taking place. In the course of the next several installments of Nailing It Down, I will attempt to explain what I mean. In this episode, I want to hearken back to the earliest days of our republic, maybe even a little farther than that, and examine the gnarly seeds of racial hatred fed and cultivated in the minds of white Europeans from the first moment they encountered people of color. It's a dark and depressing history, based on hateful practices like indentured servitude, slavery, and lynching, all sanctioned by religious leaders who embraced, along with the faithful, a deep-seated belief in the supremacy of light-skinned people. We know the attitude behind the actions as white supremacy, and there is at least residue of it in most white people today, whether we want to admit it or not. Of course, there have been voices opposed to such attitudes along the way, but much of the time they have been rendered faint by the power of majority opinion in mainstream America. It would be nice to think we might be close to eradicating such thinking. But as British comedian Lenny Henry reminded us this year, on the 25th anniversary of the death of a black youth at the hands of a gang of white teens, when it comes to fighting racism, institutional or otherwise, there is no finish line. You won't get to an age when we can finally breathe out and say, yes, no need to worry about racism anymore. We can trace attitudes of white supremacy back at least to the 1600s. White Europeans had already seen slavery in Africa before they arrived in America. They welcomed the first cargo of Africans to Boston from Barbados in 1634. Buying and selling human beings, especially if they had been converted to Christianity, posed a problem for New England Puritans, who questioned whether it was right for a Christian to own another Christian. In 1693, the great preacher Cotton Mather published a pamphlet titled The Negro Christianized. He assured Puritans that giving Africans religion didn't mean they should be set free. He emphasized the ancient Hebrew model, 
urging the Israelites to relate to their slaves as a parent would to a child. These were adults, dragged from their homelands by slavers, and Mather is urging his congregants to treat them with condescension, like children who are obviously less intelligent and less capable than the white people who owned them. And there it is, implicit in such teaching, we see the genesis of white supremacy in America. If you doubt that, note the rules the Puritans laid down for controlling the conduct of African slaves. They could not drink alcohol, start fires, or gather on their own. That last provision might have stemmed from incidents like Bacon's Rebellion in 1676, in which African slaves joined white servants in armed resistance to the governor of Virginia. And to avoid harming slave owners' property rights, the Puritans ordered that unruly slaves be whipped rather than thrown in jail. Rowdy white indentured servants, whose lives were barely more livable than slaves, were not whipped. Hard as it is for me to understand, the idea of white people, especially those with English heritage, being superior to Africans was a common part of white mentality as the colonies plotted toward independence. No less a founding father than Ben Franklin complained in the 1750s that some Pennsylvania signposts were in English and German. In a Wall Street Journal article in February 2018, Jason L. Riley reminded us the good Dr. Franklin considered German immigrants as a swarthy horde, much as President Trump views most immigrants today. About German immigrants, Franklin opined, Why should Pennsylvania, founded by the English, become a colony of aliens? who will shortly be so numerous as to Germanize us instead of us anglifying them, and will never adopt our language and customs any more than they can acquire our complexion. Franklin, of course, owned slaves, as did the great defender of democracy Thomas Jefferson, who made a slave woman his mistress, but never freed her or her children or any of his more than 130 slaves while he was alive. The same year Jefferson argued for the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for his white friends and relatives in the Declaration of Independence, he wrote in his Notes on the State of Virginia that blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstances, are inferior to the whites in the endowments both of body and mind. Elsewhere in the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson complains of domestic insurrections encouraged in the colonies by the British. He's obviously referring to slave uprisings, some of them triggered by English offers of freedom for slaves who rose up against their masters. Jefferson is no happier about English efforts to organize Native Americans against the colonists. He refers to the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. No one ever talked about slave uprisings in my high school or college history classes, but Jefferson and his congressional colleagues clearly worried about them. Historian Sally Hayden argues in her 2003 book, Slave Patrol, that southern states pushed hard for the Second Amendment to the Constitution, the right to bear arms, so they could require men between the ages of 18 and 45, including physicians and ministers, to serve on slave patrols. To make her point perfectly clear, Hayden reminds us that the Second Amendment is carefully worded, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Hayden argues that this wasn't meant to keep the new nation in a state of readiness in case of an enemy attack on the coast. 
It was to preserve the slave patrol militias already in use in the South. Hayden points out that in 1755, Georgia law required armed male white Georgia militia members to inspect slave quarters looking for signs of an uprising. They were instructed to give 20 lashes to any slave found outside plantation grounds. And again, a detail I was virtually unaware of. Hayden says, Slave rebellions were keeping the slave patrols busy. By the time the Constitution was ratified, hundreds, let me repeat that, hundreds of slave uprisings had occurred across the South. And lest there be any doubt that our Founding Fathers considered African Americans inferior to white people, the only sign of them in the Constitution is in the instructions for counting the population to determine representation in Congress. Each white person, free or indentured, counted as one. Native Americans apparently didn't count at all, and African slaves, who were technically property but also considered human, albeit of an inferior sort compared to white people, were to be counted, but only three-fifths of that total could be added to a state's population. Yes, that despicable provision was eventually repealed, but its inclusion in the first place maintained support for white supremacy right through the birth of our nation. By the mid-18th century, scientists were lining up behind the ministers who already had been preaching the inferiority of African Americans for hundreds of years. Jefferson was among the educated class who applied the classification system Carolus Linnaeus worked out for the rest of the natural world to humans. Jefferson is recognized as a leader in promoting the idea of race that recognized whites as superior and Africans as inferior. By the mid-19th century, people were using science to justify both slavery and the mistreatment of slaves. Understandingrace.org offers the story of a plantation doctor named Samuel Cartwright. Dr. Cartwright tried to explain the tendency of slaves to run away. Why would they want to run away, you ask yourself? He suggested that slaves were driven to run by a condition he called a drapetomania, derived from the Greek word drapetes, meaning a runaway slave, and the Greek, now English word, mania. According to Wikipedia, Cartwright believed the condition was a consequence of masters who made themselves too familiar with slaves and treated them as equals. Yes, there were those who rejected white supremacy and the racist attitudes it dragged in its malevolent wake. A profane slave ship sailor named John Newton saw the light in 1772 as he observed the horrid suffering of the human cargo crushed into the hold of his ship. He confessed his own depravity in a song we all recognize. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton left his slave ship for the pulpit and joined the abolitionists. Harry Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1852, hoping to humanize African slaves. 
but many, if not most, Americans absorbed the attitudes of those who worked to advance the racialization of non-whites. Those cast into an inferior status included Africans, Native Americans, Mexican Americans, Chinese Americans, and Irish Americans. Besides fitting comfortably with pre-existing attitudes of white supremacy, the meaning non-whites served economic and political purposes in relation to Africans, especially for Southerners, and defining Native Americans as savages made it easier to belittle their culture and take their land. Some historians have offered oblique arguments against near-universal attitudes of white supremacy by contending that only a minority of Southerners actually owned slaves and would have entertained truly hierarchical attitudes toward Africans. But Slate.com reports that in the 1860 census, it shows that more than 32% of families in what would later be Confederate states owned slaves, 20% in Arkansas, 46% in South Carolina, and 49% in Mississippi. These were mostly small farmers, ordinary folks, who willingly subjugated human beings of color to an inferior status. Slavery was the foundation of economic and social relationships, and slave ownership was a symbol of wealth and prosperity, according to historian Ira Berlin. Berlin wrote that slavery was the basis of white supremacy, which unites all whites in a racist hierarchy. He also quotes South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun, who was mentioned in my high school history class. In 1837, Calhoun argued that, quote, the existing relation between the two races in the South forms the most solid and durable foundation on which to rear free and stable political institutions, end of quote. As we all know, President Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves in 1863 by signing the Emancipation Proclamation. We fought a war to free them, and then passed the 13th Amendment to ensure that neither Africans nor any other peoples should be sold as property henceforth in the United States of America. But the answer to Rodney King's question, had he been around then to ask it in 1865, would still have been no. Brian Stevenson, founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, explains why. I don't think the, the great evil of American slavery was involuntary servitude or forced labor. I really believe that the true evil of American slavery was the narrative of racial difference that we created to justify it. We said that black people are not people. They're not fully human. They're not devolved. The United States Supreme Court accepted that we're three-fifths human. And this ideology of white supremacy that we created to justify slavery, you know, slave owners didn't want to feel immoral. They didn't want to feel like they were doing something inhumane. So they said, no, these black people need to be slaves. We're helping them by enslaving them because they're not evolved. They're not moral. And that ideology of white supremacy for me was the true evil of American slavery. And if you read the 13th Amendment, which is passed in 1865, it talks about ending involuntary servitude and ending forced labor, but it doesn't say anything about ending this ideology of white supremacy. And because of that, I don't think slavery ends in 1865. I think it evolves. We'll pick up the story of white supremacy next time in Answering Rodney King, Part 2. That's it for this go-round. I welcome your feedback at kellymark2 at gmail.com. That's kellymark2 at gmail.com. You can also request a transcript of this episode through that same email address. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again. 
The theme music you are about to hear rising up under my voice is called Awkward Situation by Vortex. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends. Part of the mission here is to provide a corrective to the misleading and deceitful harangues of right-wing demagogues and talk show hosts who have been punching the daylights out of legitimate, dedicated, professional journalists for far too long. Together, we can make a difference. I'm Mark Kelly, and this is Nailing It Down.